It was a creed written into the foundation documents that declared the destiny of a nation. Yes, we can. It was the call of workers who organised, women who reached for the ballot, a president who chose the moon as our new frontier and a king who took us to the mountaintop and pointed the way to the promised land. Yes, we can. To justice and equality. Yes, we can. To opportunity and prosperity. Yes, we can heal this nation. Yes, we can repair this world. Yes, we can. But we've been warned against offering the people of this nation false hope. But in the unlikely story that is America, there has never been anything false about our hope. Stirring words, some might say cheesy words, but they are uh, words from one of, I think, one of the great speeches uh, of modern politics. One of the uh, presidential candidates, or at least a candidate for his party in the recent uh, primaries that are going on in the US, spoke these words. Words that I think uh, capture so much of the human spirit so much of the human project that always looks to the future and hopes for bigger and brighter days in the future. We always have big dreams about what we will do as a world, how we will overcome our obstacles, how we will get to that brighter day. Human history is shaped by some of those dreams, some of the big dreamers who have announced them. Some dreams are big and yet there are smaller ones, aren't there? Our own dreams And I imagine in a room uh, as full as this one tonight, there are many dreams, many different dreams that we all have. Some big, as I said, some noble, some maybe selfish. I still hold out the dream that I will play cricket for Australia. That dream is fading fast and my nation is happy about that. But we all have dreams, the little ones and the big ones. What do we make of them, these hopes, these dreams that we have many of which uh, the big ones and the little ones turn out to be unattainable. Does it matter if our dreams are realistic or not? I mean, some would argue that the the more far-fetched a dream is, the more extraordinary, the more out of this world, the more it has the ability to drive us and inspire us and to push us on to bigger and better things. Is, Is that right? Does it matter? As I looked at Ezekiel 33 this week, I guess the response that kept coming into my head was not really. Because what we've been hearing from this book of Ezekiel as we've gone through it in recent weeks is that there is one reality that makes or breaks all hopes and dreams that we might have. One reality that is at the centre of all of our futures. It is the Lord on his throne as we met him way back in chapter 1. And let me say as we reflect back over the look that we've had in this book so far that this is a reality that can be hard to face because it is conceivable that the reality of the Lord on his throne utterly aware of this world, utterly involved, utterly in control when we see what he is actually like and what he is doing and what he will do it could easily render all hopes and dreams in the present impossible and perhaps even irrelevant. It would be impossible to miss in in the recent weeks of our look at Ezekiel the message that he has brought these exiles in Babylon, his countrymen. 
It's not a message of hope. It's not the sort of message that we heard at the beginning. It's a message of hopelessness. They've been told their God, the Lord, is utterly against them. He is their enemy. And when you come face to face with that reality, there aren't many dreams left to dream, are there? But as we prepare once more to go into this, as I said before in the prayer, the sword-like word of Ezekiel, as we prepare to go into it again and see our sinfulness as God sees it and see the certainty of the judgment that lies beyond that, what we'll begin to see tonight as well is a miracle that lies beyond both those things. That out of the utter hopelessness of God's judgment there emerges a hope and not a wistful wishful, sentimental hope, but a big one, a strong one, a certain hope. We'll see just a glimpse of it tonight and over the coming weeks it will blow out into dimensions that are impossible to comprehend. But really from what we have seen so far, way back in chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 33 tonight is the account of a decade's work. Ten years Ezekiel has brought God's word to Israel as they sit by the banks of the river in Babylon, warning them again and again, this will not end well. This situation that you're in, in exile, is not a blip before normal transmission resumes. God's judgment is falling and it's only just begun. This will not end well. Jerusalem, the city of God, their treasured possession and all it represents will be utterly destroyed. Back in chapter 24, we are given a prediction of when this will happen of the moment. If uh, you flick back to chapter 24, you see one of the most moving passages in all of Scripture where Yahweh compares the loss of Jerusalem, the loss of this great city and its temple and everything that it stands for with the loss that Ezekiel suffers in that chapter the loss of his wife, the delight of his eyes. We'll skip forward again to chapter 33 and verse 21 and see the moment arrive. The end has come. Verse 21, in the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has fallen. Now it's hard to comprehend for us sitting here tonight just how massive those four words are for the people in exile. Everything has changed. Everything that they understood that God had given them, all the gifts that he had given them, giving them this land, this city, this great temple, all of it, God was now destroying before their eyes. And as we've seen throughout this book, This is not just a message for Israel, but for all the world. Because between the prediction in chapter 24 of this end of the great city of Jerusalem to the moment that it happens in chapter 33, we have some eight chapters cataloguing the nations all around Israel, godless nations, nations like Israel who had lived in defiance of the Lord. And the message for the world is in essence the same as the message for Israel. It will not end well. 
And we who know the New Testament hear the words of a verse like Hebrews 9.27 and know that that speaks to our world too. Just as man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. God says you cut yourself off from me and there is the future. Death and judgment. And when you see that future, there aren't many dreams left to dream, are there? And so it seems as as we get to verse 21 of Ezekiel 33 that Ezekiel's job is done. The end has come, a decade's work over. I mean, what more could be said? Once judgment has fallen, what else is there left? Well, that's where the big surprise of this chapter comes. With that question in our mind, what else is left? Have a look at verse 2 as this surprise starts to unfold where we see Ezekiel's role described for us. He is a watchman. And in verses 2 to 6, we get a pretty simple description of, of what would have been a fairly commonplace thing. A watchman was, was the ancient world's early warning system. A simple role, a man would be appointed, pretty dodgy role if you ask me, but he had to sit outside the city gates on the highest hill he could find. And what he would do is he'd sit up on that hill and he'd look all around, waiting for this enemy to come. And when he saw the enemy approaching, he would give a blast on his horn and all the people outside the city walls would rush back in and they'd lock the gates. That's Ezekiel's role. And it continued to be his role even though Jerusalem has fallen. He's described as such, you see it there in verse 7. He is a watchman for the house of Israel. But have a look at verse 7. And here you see the surprise. If Ezekiel is a watchman for Israel, who is the enemy? I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? We've seen it for 32 chapters leading up to this moment. It is the Lord who charges at Jerusalem in full full flight on his throne, in judgment. He is their enemy. But look at the verse again. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. Do you see the surprise? You see, it wasn't the people of Israel who appointed the watchman. That would be the obvious thing. It's the Lord. Their enemy has provided a watchman. You think about this sort of the picture of battle that we're getting in these early verses. It it seems like the absolute last thing you would do when you were hoping to take a city. What kind of enemy plans out his battle, prepares the day, gets to the crucial moment when he will charge against a city and just as he's about to do that, sends someone ahead of him to give the game away? At the crucial moment. What kind of enemy sounds the horn to allow his enemy to flee, to escape, to avoid the sword that he is bringing? Crazy tactics. What kind of enemy? The kind that says, as our Lord does in verse 11, do you see it there? As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? This is what our Lord is like. It's what he is like with Israel and it is what he is like with our world. 
Very similar words are said in 2 Peter 3.9 when people are wondering why God's judgment hasn't come on this world. Peter says, The Lord is not slow in bringing his judgment, as some understand slowness. No, he is patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to turn and live. That's what our God is like. Utterly committed to our good, utterly gracious, right up to the end. Why will you die, he says? Turn and live. That's the grace of God. It's a crazy battle tactic. As I said, you, you won't see this battle plan in any of the sort of great battle plans of history. This one won't rate a mention. Crazy. But not if you love like God loves. Not if your heart and pleasure are in life and not in death. If that's who you are and that's who our Lord is, then of course you send a watchman, don't you? Actually, you don't send one. You send one after another, after another, after another. You get the picture of what our God is like? I was trying to get my head around it this week and I was reminded of, uh, of an Australian father that I read about a few years ago. His name is Lee Rush and uh, his son came uh, to prominence in the Australian media. I'm not sure if it got across here a couple of years ago. His son was part of what is known as the Bali Nine, nine young Australians who were arrested in Indonesia for trying to bring heroin back from Indonesia to Australia. I remember seeing an interview with with Scott's father, Lee, uh, on on Australian TV where he was describing the moments that led up to his son leaving Australia. Slowly he got wind that something wasn't right. His son had never been overseas. He didn't have a passport. He didn't have any money. He told him he was going on a holiday to Brisbane and then all of a sudden he saw a ticket to Bali. And so he spent the next two weeks, the father desperately trying to stop his son leaving the country. He tried all angles. He even got to the point where he'd organised with the police to intercept him as he got through customs. I remember him saying in the interview, he got to the point where he actually thought that was going to happen. They said he'll be intercepted at that point, everything will be fine. He went to bed and he woke up the next morning to hear that his son Scott had boarded the plane. Two weeks he knew nothing of what was happening and then he got another call, this time from the government to say that his son had been arrested and was now facing the death penalty. Imagine how desperate you would be if you knew that situation, how desperate you would be to stop him getting on that plane. Well, that's the picture of our God here in verse 11. Desperate, desperate to stop us killing ourselves. And so he appoints Ezekiel. And for us as Christians, we need to know that the scripture makes clear that we too have been appointed watchmen. And like Ezekiel, he holds us accountable to this job because it's no small matter to him. He loves this world desperately and for him it is a matter of life and death. And so given this, let me ask you a question that's been bouncing around my head this week, a question that I've asked myself. What kind of watchman wouldn't do this? What kind of watchman wouldn't fulfil this role that Ezekiel did that, that Scott Rush's father tried to do, who wouldn't do it? What kind of watchman would do the sort of thing we see described in verse 6, see the enemy coming and do nothing about it, not warn? 
I was thinking about that and I remember my first experience of a watchman in this country uh, early last year. As a, as a leaving present, my, my brother had given me a sat-nav, uh, which has been incredibly valuable. I still don't know my way around Sheffield at all without this sat-nav, but I was proudly driving along in my car with my sat-nav, getting down to Eckersall Road, which shouldn't be hard, but uh, still struggle with that. And there I was, parked in the Waitrose car park. I'm not prone to go to the fancy supermarket, but there I was. And uh, I'm walking around the aisle thinking, this is a really nice supermarket. And uh, all of a sudden, over the loudspeaker, I hear, uh, could the owner of KCO4 YNS come to the uh, information desk? And I hadn't had the car for very long. It took uh, took about five announcements for the penny to drop that this was my car. That's my car they're talking about. (laughs) So uh, I headed over there with my trolley. And uh, I said, I think you've announced that uh, my car, you want to tell me something about my car? And they said, oh, I'm sorry to say that your car's been broken into. Somebody smashed the, uh, the driver's window and they've taken the sat-nav. I'm thinking, how am I going to get home? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I went outside and they said, oh, there's a security guard, a watchman who saw all this happen. So I went out there and he said, oh, my job is to look, look after the car park. And so I was watching the car park and I saw this dodgy man walking back and forward in the rows and he started to look at your car and he was looking in closely, looking at all the windows and then he smashed the window and then he reached in and he grabbed your sat-nav and he ran that way. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, at what point in that process did you not think, I should go up at this point and say, hey, don't do that. He, he took the whole concept of the watchman literally He just watched (laughs) while all this happened. What kind of watchman would do that when the stakes are as high as the ones we've seen in this chapter? Well, I can only think of one sort of person who would do that. One who doesn't think the problem's that big. Or a bit like the Waitrose watchman who who thinks that nothing will actually happen. It kind of looks bad, but it, it won't actually happen. God won't judge. Things aren't that serious. We aren't that sinful. And even if we are, God can't be that angry about it. Or even if he did come in judgment, it won't be soon. There's time. Sin doesn't matter that much. And so rather than tell it like it is, rather than fulfil our role as a watchman, we underscore this judgment. We seek to somehow circumvent it because we know, as John 7, 7 says, that the judgment of God is what offends people. And so we just get rid of it. But let me say that I believe the Bible makes clear that without the watchman's horn, without this warning, the gospel, or what is left of it, is nothing more than music to our world. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ says, Turn and live. Run away, escape, now. Tell me, who on earth do you think is going to respond to that if they have no sense of the danger? No reason to run to God's mercy and his grace. Do you feel the urgency of this? As I was reading it this week, the the thought that kept coming into my head is that our world needs more watchmen. That's what was so exciting about Monday night to hear about what, what God is doing through people who have left here to go all, around, all around the world, watchmen all around the world. Our world needs more of them. On every street corner, in offices, in hospitals, in homes, everywhere we find ourselves, he needs us there as watchmen. And let me push just a bit further from something that's been on my heart really since I've been here. 
this country needs more watchmen, more full-time watchmen, people who set apart their lives to say, this is what I'm going to do in this place. Now, I know and I hope all of us, in whatever context we find ourselves in, are prepared to be watchmen in that place. I'm talking about going into full-time ministry. Our world, our country here needs more watchmen. I remember when I was ordained uh, into Anglican ministry, one of the things that the ordinal says is it says that I am a watchman, that I am to do this job. Our country needs more. More who see the urgency of it. I suspect we have plenty of, for instance, Anglican watchmen, but plenty of them are the Waitrose style who do lots of watching, not much warning. Let me say, when I first got here, one of the things that struck me is I looked up at that balcony and saw this sea of students and I looked over here and saw this sea of youth. I thought, and blood starts pumping at this point, just, just how exciting it would be if even five or ten or twenty or fifty over the next five years went into full-time ministry who said, that's what I'm going to do, I'm going to be a watchman. Now I hope, as I said before, that you'll do that in whatever you do with the rest of your life but this country needs more full-time watchmen. Let me say, make your plans now. I'm not exactly sure how I ended up uh, in this caper. I suspect what it was is that I got stuck in the wrong crowd. I got stuck with a, a sort of a band of brothers, if you will, who sort of egged each other on and somehow I'm here. Let me say, that's what you need to do. You need to get beside each other and to encourage each other to do that. Our world needs more watchmen who are heartbroken like our God is about where our world is heading, who weep with the Apostle Paul as he does in Philippians when he says many live as enemies of the cross of Christ and who can say as he does in Acts 20 that I declare to you that I am innocent of all men's blood for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. And for me it's those last five words of Acts 20 verse 27 that speak about the message that we have to give, the whole will of God. For if you look at Ezekiel 33, the watchman has two jobs, don't they? Two parts to their warning. Firstly, we announce the judgment and secondly, we call on people to turn and live. It's an amazing message that we get to share with our world, isn't it? We have been asked to say, as someone once said to us, that when you realise you're a sinner, when you realise that because of that God's judgement is a reality that you live under, when you realise that that's a hopeless situation, when you can say with the Israelites in verse 10, our offences and our sins weigh us down, we are wasting away because of them. How can we live? When you know that, then you need to know something else. Because there is more to say, even here at the end. Even as the city falls, Ezekiel keeps speaking. But now it's not a word of judgment, it is a word of a miracle. About a hope, even for the hopeless. Turn and you will live. What a message. It's a message of great comfort, isn't it? See you there in verse 10. Those who see their sin those who see its consequences, who know their wickedness in God's sight, know they've blown it and there's no way back. 
To them, the Gospel says the words of verse 14 and 15, where God says, I say to the wicked man, you will surely die. But if he turns away from his sin and does what is just and right, he will surely live, he will not die. To such a person, the Gospel says, you have passed from death to life. Your past does not determine your future. God does. Turn and live. I remember uh, meeting with a guy on the day before uh, Good Friday a few years ago in uh, Kellyville where I worked before a guy who'd had a whole bunch of his past all of a sudden race up behind him and crash into his life in a pretty horrific way. He'd become a Christian only a few weeks before. It was a pretty hard start to the Christian life. And I remember reading with him these words in verse 16 of our chapter. None of the sins you have committed will be remembered against you. You have done what is just and right. You will surely live. The Gospel says live, no longer under judgment, but under the lordship of the gracious King. Live a life worthy of him, pleasing him, bearing fruit for him and growing in knowledge of him. Live says the Gospel. But it's also a message of challenge, isn't it? Have a look at verses 12 and 13. It's a message of challenge to those who hear the warning of the watchman but can't see really how it changes things for them. Sort of like those who, who remained in Jerusalem after the fall of the city, sort of walking around in the rubble as if nothing had happened. You see them in verses 23 to 26. They're holding up Abraham as their get-out-of-jail-free card. We're fine, they said. We'll just start again. We're in the right place, the right pedigree. We look the part. And where do you find people like that? Well, verse 23 to 26 says you find them in the heart of things, in Jerusalem. And as for now, where do you find them? Well, I suspect right here. That's where they'd be on a Sunday night. We're the ones in the biggest danger of falling into this trap, looking the part, trusting our own righteousness, a righteousness that in the end, as, as any righteousness that's our own, proves to be paper thin. Because we hear this call, this call to live, live under Christ's lordship, but it fails to make any difference to the way we live. And if you want to know what it looks like, have a look at verses 25 and 26. Once again, just an amazing insight from the scriptures of of how such a person fails to heed the call to submit to the Lord, fails to see their life changed by it. And really there's four things that I want to quickly pick up on. The first is that even though they hear this warning, even though they hear this call to live, they refuse to be set apart. They're contaminated. Described there as eating uh, the contaminated food that those around them eat. For me, it's a picture of the one who's regular at church or youth group or or lighthouse, maybe even in a small group or one-to-one. Might even be a leader, a pillar of the church, but no less contaminated by the world around them than those who know nothing of the Lord. Such a person might hear this call to repent, but seems to miss any implications it might have on their life that it might mean a call to honest relationships, whether it be with a tax man or whether it be as an employee or even within our families. 
that sees no call to, to be set apart, to be pure in speech or pure in what we fill our eyes with. We fail to see such things matter if we fail to hear the watchman's call. And secondly, we, we have people who are in the end not faithful. That's what verse 25 says. They end up looking at their idols rather than God. It's a trap we fall into when the future event that, that shapes our values and our decisions and our goals and our, even our conversations is not the Lord's imminent return in judgment but other things, our imminent career move. And so we give our time to that. Our imminent impending plans for our children's future and so we give our wealth to that. Our impending relationship hopes and so we give our heart to that. Well, there might be those who end up not having any compassion. You see verse 25, a picture of those who shed blood just as swiftly as those who know nothing of the Lord's return. They end up just as rude and uncaring about neighbours when they wrong, wrong us. Just as abrupt at work with others, as dismissive of those below us, as ruthless with our peers, paper thin righteousness. And finally... And I think this is probably the biggest danger. We have those who end up not dependent on the Lord, who live by the sword, we're told in verse 26. That despite the fact that we know Jesus is Lord and not us, we would never be heard to say, as the exiles do in verse 10, how then can we live? Because in fact we have very good answers to that question. Well, I'll live by my intelligence, by my investments, my relationships. If I need to, I'll live by myself. But without these marks of genuine repentance, of renewed life under the Lordship of Jesus, all our words, all our church attendance, even our service means nothing. In fact, in the words of verse 13, none of the righteous things such a person has done will be remembered. He will die for the evil he has done. And so as I finish, let me ask you, how do we respond to yet another hard word from God's word? It should lead us to change, shouldn't it? Wherever we are when we hear this word in our lives, it should lead us to change. Well, let me encourage you not to respond like Ezekiel's countrymen do. Do you see it there at the end of our chapter? Verse 32. Ezekiel brings this message of warning as a watchman and to them he is nothing more than one who sings love songs. A beautiful voice and he plays an instrument well. For they hear your words but they don't put them into practice. Now, I I am under no illusions that the Australian accent is far from beautiful or uh, tuneful. So I doubt you'll leave here thinking, what a beautiful voice. But if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, by which I mean uh, you're not someone who has repented of living as if you're in charge, that you haven't come under the lordship of Christ, the rule of God, if that's you, It's great you're here. But as you hear this word from Ezekiel, let me encourage you not to be like his countrymen. To hear this word of judgment, a word that calls you to turn and live and think, well, I've heard that song before and I prefer the upbeat ones. Play me a new song or I'll change the channel. If you've not responded to the message of the watchman, feel the weight of your sin before God. Feel the weight of his judgment against that sin. 
feel the danger and then hear the call. Turn and live. Judgment gone. Life can begin again. And if you are here tonight as a Christian, as most of us are, feel the challenge of this chapter. I think one of the great dangers for us, even in evangelical circles, is to think of God's word and especially its proclamation by a watchman as for our entertainment, like a song. There's a great danger in leaving a Sunday night or even leaving a great Christian convention, a Keswick or a New Word Alive or whatever it might be and think, wow, wasn't that great? I was taught, I was fed, I was inspired, I was encouraged. But of much greater moment is the fact that God's word always calls upon us to turn and live. Let me ask you as you come before his word tonight, are you ready to be changed by it? Ready to have your world turned upside down if that's needed? Your priorities, your career, your family, your hopes? Because that's what God's word does if we're hearing it clearly. And so I say to you, Christian, turn and live. Let's pray. Father God, you are...